You're listening to River Church Podcast. To learn more about River Church or to support us financially, please visit us online at rivercolumbia.com. We hope that you enjoy this week's message. Before we jump into Revelation 2, uh, Jesus in Matthew 21, you don't, have, you don't have to flip there right now, but in Matthew 21, he kind of told a, a parable about a vine dresser. Or a, or a vineyard owner, and he leased vineyards to a bunch of tenants, and basically the summary of the story was those tenants didn't do a good job stewarding it. They killed all the servants that he sent, which is really not a good job stewarding you know, his, his vineyard. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus makes this statement that uh, the kingdom will be given to those bearing the fruits of it. So he says, in other words, I gave them a vineyard, this, this, this uh, owner did gives a group of people a vineyard. They're supposed to make it fruitful, you know. They don't do that. And not only do they not do that, but they kill every servant that he sends. And he was saying it unto the, like, the Pharisees saying, the things of God have been given to you, the nation of Israel. And I mean, as, as radically honest as he was in so many times, he was clearly saying, it literally says at the end of Matthew 21 that the Pharisees perceived that he was talking about them. When he says, the Lord will take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation that is bearing the fruits of it. Later on in Matthew 24, he's in the middle again of kind of giving the Pharisees a little bit of a um, strong word. And it's probably to say it lightly. And he's talking also to his disciples about the future. And he's talking about how there's going to be like savage wolves that come in and they're going to uh, basically be false prophets. They're going to destroy or want to destroy the people of God. And that lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. And he was warning, it's very important that you know that that second little part there in Matthew 24, he's talking about, he's talking to his disciples. He wasn't talking to the Pharisees any longer. He was in the middle, like a lot of times he would talk to his disciples in front of the Pharisees which I'm sure was interesting. But he was talking to his disciples and he, among other things, said that lawlessness will abound. That they'll murder you, they'll kill you, they'll give you up onto councils and lawlessness will abound, but the love of many will grow cold. He was warning his disciples to never stop living in the command of God, to love God and love people. It wasn't saying the love of many will grow cold is in the world. He was saying, but you don't let your love grow cold. Okay, so in Acts 20, Paul, everybody knows, or more specifically, Saul. He has an encounter with the Lord. He was a Pharisee killing Christians or helping kill Christians at the very minimum. He has an encounter with the Lord on the the road. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How hard it is to kick against the goes. He meets the Lord there, sees the Lord more specifically, has a revelation of Jesus, gets struck blind. That was his entrance into following Jesus, was being given blindness for three days. And he goes, he gets so convicted about uh, the call that the Lord has on his life to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's every other nation but Israel, that he goes and starts preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, yes, Lord, I'm going. And so he starts going and he's preaching the gospel under all kinds of persecution. And one of the places that he preached the gospel, uh, he and his spiritual sons that would go out was Ephesus. And in Acts 20, he uh, warns Ephesus. He's about to die, basically, or maybe die or maybe be given over this like this. He's he's leaving the Ephesian church that he was had spent three years with in Acts 20. So he had spent three years there as an apostle in that day. He would go preach the gospel. A harvest would be reaped. And then he would spend a couple years with them. And then he would go somewhere else. Do the same thing all over again. And so he had spent three years and he was telling them, all right, my time has come. I need to be go. He's basically telling them I'm going to be delivered up. But in other words, I'm going to go preach the gospel in Rome and a couple of other places. And so they're all like pretty upset. You know, because they loved him. They didn't want him to leave. It says that they were like hugging him and kissing on his neck. And in the midst of that like departure, that little gathering of leaving, so to speak, um, he gives them a warning in Acts 20 that there's going to be, be basically what he calls savage wolves that come in and try to destroy our faith. And he gives them 
almost identically the same warning Jesus gave in Matthew 24. Your translations will say it in different ways, but in the Greek language, it's, the almost, it's almost the identical warning that Jesus gave his disciples. The lawlessness, lawlessness will abound, but the love of many will grow cold. Jesus was more so prophesying, unfortunately. Paul gives the Ephesian church the same warning, and he says, hey, don't remember these one simple words, these simple words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So he gives them a warning. Savage wolves are coming. They're going to try to destroy what we have here in this beautiful 80-ish person church. That's how big it was around there. They're going to come and try to bring some kind of teaching. And they're going to try to lead you into like all things. Sexual immorality. Saying that you can do whatever with your body. That was kind of the, the, the essence of the teaching a lot of times that these people would bring. Oh, you're forgiven by God. You can do whatever you want with your body. And Paul calls that savage wolves. Don't give way to it. And instead, remember the works of Christ and the fact that he said it's more blessed to give than receive. So he sends them out into an action not to play defense and, you know, be some kind of judgment person. But to remember that your faith has overcome the world, essentially, is how John would have said it. Okay, so we get to Revelation 2. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, these letters in 2 and 3 are letters to real churches in present-day Turkey. One of them being Ephesus. So this was the fulfillment of what Jesus and Paul had been speaking to. Sometime after. It's hard to say exactly how long. doesn't really matter right now to say how long after. But let's read this. Jesus writes a couple letters. He gives them to an angel to give to John, to give to the churches. And he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, <coughs> These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake. Just take note of how Jesus talks to his church. And have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love or the love you had at first, is how most other translations say it. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Verse 6, But this you have, that you have the deeds, that you hate the deeds, certainly not have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Uh, Each one of these letters comes or ends with a promise that says something along the lines of, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, send this to all the churches. And so as I said last week, these letters are not just for the Ephesian church. They're primarily, this letter was primarily for that little church in Ephesus. We don't have the map today, but Ephesus was this beautiful port city, super powerful, a lot of Roman influence. And this letter was primarily for them, but it was to be read in all the churches on that little trail of that map. If you don't know the map, you can go Google the map and it'll show up for you. Some, a lot of times Googling is not the answer. This one, you can look for it and it's fine. Okay. But needless to say, present day Turkey, this part of Asia, there's these churches on what was Paul's missionary uh, trail, basically. Like he started in one place, ended in Ephesus, went over to Rome. But, but he gives a letter that's meant to be circulated to all of them. And now for all time, we're to keep these letters and take these warnings as if he is speaking straight to us. And I just want to take a moment before I kind of like just expand a little bit on and explain a little bit of and really clarify what Jesus is getting at and what the spirit is saying to us in the midst of it. I just want to take a moment And remind you, we're talking about a letter from our Lord to us. We're not talking about a book that somebody wrote who loves Jesus and is kind of, you know, or like respected. We're talking about Jesus with words to his bride, his church, 
And like in the fear of the Lord, I like and just the most true respect and honor for who he is and the fact that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I want my heart. I want every bit of my own preferences. I want every bit of my own uh, uh, things that I'm comfortable with, things that I think I know theologically or in wisdom or whatever. I want to put all those aside to hear his words. When I do not do that, what I am saying to him is that he is one of many lords. When I bring things that like kind of get in the way, but when my heart is humble before him, what it prophesies to him, what it says to him is that he is the Lord of lords. And if I've been doing it wrong my whole life, change it, Lord. If you want me to keep going in something, amen, Lord. It's just a simple yes. For me, that's relieving. Because a simple yes is something I can live in, something you can live in. Um, something else I find or, or I want to point out before I get into some of the verses here together is all of these letters. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to read Revelation 2 and 3 yet since last Sunday. If not, I want to encourage you to as many times as you can the next week or two or seven because we're going to be here for a while. Um, but all of these letters kind of follow this format of it starts. And I think this format if we'll pay attention to it, it's really, really important. He's no dummy. He's, do you know Jesus is smart? You know? Really smart. You know he's got all the wisdom in the world? I would, you know, encourage you to actually consider whether or not you believe that. He, Jesus, intelligent, Smart. That means literary master. Intention behind everything he does. In Corinthians, it says that in him is hidden all wisdom and righteousness. It's beautiful. All wisdom is in him. You know, I talked about like our view of him is expanding. Going from just like straightforward to like that panoramic view of like who he really is as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. The express image of God. <laughs> what? He's incredibly intelligent. And so these letters kind of, they have this format to them. They start with who he is because that is what is most important. It says to this church, and it gives a characteristic of him. In this one, it's he's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then it goes into a few little bits of encouragement. Only in one of the churches is there no encouragement. It's tough. <laughs> and then it goes into a few things that he's like, yo, this is going, he doesn't say yo probably, but he's like, this is going really, really good. Really, really good. And then he goes straight into no fluff, no pretense, straight into just simple rebuke. Sometimes it's like, there's only one, two churches actually in these next couple of weeks they don't get a rebuke they get a warning they don't get a rebuke good for them um so it starts with who he is goes into a little bit of like this uh encouragement goes into a rebuke like this is not good for the ephesian church we'll we'll get to that in a second and then it goes into a warning like if this doesn't change here's what's going to happen or here's what like not like he doesn't like coddle it in this language of like but i know that's not your heart find that interesting, you know? Like sometimes one of the oddest things about being a Christian is when people try to tell you something honestly and they don't say anything. Because it's laced and they mean really well, but they're like, you know, I know you don't mean anything by it, but like I just want to talk to you about that thing you said. And I know you don't mean anything by it, but I just want to talk to you about it. And it's like, what did I say? Well, I know you didn't mean anything by it. And I just, I just want to forgive you. I'm like, what? What just happened? What did we just do right here? That was weird, you know? Jesus, because he's so loving, is just like, no, this is exactly what's wrong. No, no pretense. And it's got like love in his eyes and all that kind of stuff. And it makes you feel fuzzy inside. And sometimes it does not. Rebuke. And then a warning of like, if this doesn't change, this is what's going to happen. And then he ends the whole thing. Each letter, each of these grand, beautiful, important letters with a promise. That leaves the people knowing their identity, absolutely, but knowing that there is a promise to take hold of. In other words, he's like, here's the promise and you're going to need to take hold of it. I can't do this for you. I want it for you, desperately. 
And I just, again, I think the Spirit is, I know the Spirit is maturing us in our understanding of who He is and how we follow Him, how we really live in the sincerity of heart that we say we have. And there are going to be so many times when we like stumble and fall, plenty of that. But, but I do believe the Lord's making strong what we say we believe about Him. Um, in verse 1, it says that He is the one who is standing amongst the seven golden lampstands. Uh, right before, at the end of chapter 1, it just simply says that He is uh, the one that holds the seven angels, which are the seven stars. And then the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so what, what more confidence do we need than the fact that the Lord is with us? He starts this very, very, very clear letter to this Ephesian church with the reality that I'm the one who is with you. I'm amongst you. I'm in your midst. I'm not a distant God. I'm not a separate God. I'm not coming down, giving you some heavy-handed law and then leaving. I'm in the midst of you. Yeah. <coughs> Something I've been like really, really guilty of in my life with the presence of the Lord is uh, brokering it out, basically. Like, one time, basically, the Lord was like, uh, do you know what it means to broker something out? And I, you know, I just had no idea. I was like, no, I've never done anything financially, and I don't want to do anything financially, God. Please don't make me do that. Um, And he was like, well, I want you to go look up the definition. And I forget the exact definition, but what I do remember is that the Spirit immediately convicted me, and Jesus spoke so clearly to my heart. He was like, don't ever make my presence something you broker out for the benefit of anything other than you enjoying me. The reward is me. I don't seek him and love him and stand in honor of him and bless him and enjoy his presence so that he will do something in the people around me. I mean, this is like, could just be for me because I am a quote unquote or called a leader or a servant. So I get tempted very often to uh, not not intentionally, but to like treat his presence in a way where like I kind of make some rules up in my mind where it's like if I can do this and do this and do this and honor it in this way, then he'll do this in and through me. That's just like using his presence as a means to an end. It's a new religion. And I just I want my heart. That song we were singing earlier, I, I was sitting there. It was personally so impactful to me just a moment ago because I've been like, I was just sitting there and I was literally praying out loud, Lord, just make me aware of your presence. And then you just come flying on in Sophie with singing whatever we were singing. And I won't try to butcher the lyrics, but like it was, and I just, what, what greater honor could there be than to be someone that lives honoring his presence, aware of his presence, hosting his presence, when I'm holding my son at 2 a.m. because he woke up screaming, when I'm washing dishes, when I'm preaching the word, when I'm talking to whoever, it's I want to be aware of your presence, God. Do you know what kind of people we would be? Heavenly. Heavenly. Do you know how much of your striving gets arrested in a nanosecond when you live there? Like trying to do the right thing at 2 a.m. with your kid when they're screaming doesn't go too far. But God, I want to be aware of your presence. Goes far. I'm not talking about results. Pierce didn't really care if I was trying to live aware to the Lord's presence most times at 2 a.m. when he's screaming. But it changes something in me. Does something in me, which is what is needed in those moments. In all of our moments to walk worthy of his calling. I just find it amazing that he's the, this is the Emmanuel revelation in fact, it is God with us. I want to have a hunger and a desire to live aware of his presence. So in the next couple of verses, he praises a few things. He encourages them in a few things. He says, your good deeds. Those are like deeds done in love. You know, like Matthew 5 through 7 kind of deeds. Yeah. Like actual real things. Like actually doing what we say we believe. It's like, okay, we say that we love Jesus. Have you given anything to anybody? Anytime recently. I know that doesn't sound really spiritual. That's about as spiritual as it gets. I was like, no, you know, I'm just waiting for him to just do this in me. It's like, no. Jesus comes. He's like, you guys have some really good deeds. You're doing a lot of good things. No other meaning to that Greek word. Not a symbolic meaning. (laughs) Just to have a little fun with it for a second. It was just literally, you guys are doing good things. And then he says, you know what? Your hard work too, really good. Your labor. Doesn't even say specifically like, uh, he's not talking about like 
He doesn't come and say, your labor in, uh, Matthew was in here earlier, and this is important and great, but Matthew was in here hanging up these curtains. He's not prime, he, that's included in the labor, but you know, I want to know what other labor he's praising. Cole, well done this week. Laboring hard. Jalen, well done this week. Laboring hard. You're working hard. You're not being lazy. That's the kind of, I'm telling you, that's like, he, this stuff matters to him. Ben, well done in the restaurant business this week. Well done, everybody. Like, maybe. Well done. Right? So he comes and says, you guys are noted, clearly seen for hard work. But I don't want to strive. What? What does that even mean? You know? I've been there myself before. It's like, oh, I'm just going to be very uh, chill. It's like, what? What am I saying, God? Praises their good deeds, hard work, and patient courage. Uh, is a way to say that last thing he praises. Uh, specifically under persecution. It's a word to talk about being patient under extreme and severe opposition. To endure under extreme opposition. And to not retaliate. So Jesus is saying, I know people are threatening to kill you. I know people are threatening to take you away from the people you love, to put you in prison. That was kind of the summary of what you would get threatened with by the government if you were known as a like practicing uh, Christian and you were trying to tell others about him, which is no such thing about a Christian who doesn't tell anybody else about him, right? So, so these people are like, again, he's like, you're, you're doing actually good things to people. You're like actually helping them. You're working really hard. And you're staying patient under endurance. You're not, or patient and you're enduring under some opposition. And you're not bowing the knee. You're not retaliating. He loves the people who also crave truth. So the other thing he praises here, uh, and again, in your translations, it depends which one you have. Uh, Most of them say something along the lines of you tested those who say they are apostles and are not. For the early church, you know, we've gotten to this place. Some of you, this might fly above your radar for a second, and that's okay. But like we've gotten to this place where when we hear apostle, a lot of us think of like one specific leader or a theological doctrine we don't agree with of apostleship, whatever. Okay, for the early church, an apostle was simply one sent out. It was every Christian. Again, there was no line between a Christian and a pastor in the early church. It was if you were a Christian, you were one sent out. There was no such thing as being a Christian not sent out. It, it, like if we would have like just inserted ourselves, for those of us who sometimes have that way of thinking as I have plenty of times, we would have inserted ourselves in the early church and kind of like talked like that in the meal times and the conversation about Jesus. They were like, you guys, that's some different thing right there. What is that? I was like, what do you mean? I just love Jesus and I'm waiting for him to send me out. And they're like, never heard of that. Most of the evangelism that was done in the early church, hard to say statistically what it would be, but most of the evangelism done in the early church was not through people like Paul or his spiritual sons. It was through people like you and me who met Jesus and told their family members, co-workers, friends about him. That's it. doesn't always take somebody being given the gift of apostleship or evangelism or whatever it is and being sent out. That's important. But an early Christian, so he's saying like, hey, you test those who are, say, say they are sent from me and are not. Kind of little note here that I want to make is uh, basically what was happening in the early church was there would be a lot of people who would go around because most of the people who would come into a body of believers, they would come from an out-of-town place and they would come and say that they'd been sent by Jesus to give a word or to share a letter or to share some type of something with them about who Jesus was and what his kingdom was like. And so there were people apparently masquerading as apostles just to get a couple nights stay at some of their houses, a couple meals, They were basically using the word of God to benefit themselves. So he's saying, you guys have, when people would show up at your doorstep, it would be like the equivalent of, let's see, like a Liz and Connor. Uh, tonight, someone shows up at their doorstep saying, hey, I'm here to deliver a word to River. And what would happen in those moments is they would test them somehow, some way, don't know how, but they would test them whether or not that person was from God. 
They would ask to stay, and then that person would come and play a part in the gatherings, house church on Wednesday. And then at some point, if they found out, Connor and Liz and the rest of the leaders found out that that was not of the Lord, they would say, you need to leave. It's like when Paul is saying, like in, in Timothy, withdraw yourself from those who cause divisions. That's what he was talking about. It's like, you need to separate yourself from that. And so Jesus is praising a people who hunger and crave for truth. And he's still praising that. Something that like has to get clarified for us is that, do you know that when you declare Jesus as the only way to life, you are going to meet opposition in the world? Do you know that that's not going to be something that everybody loves to hear? (laughs) The spirit, like, put somebody on your heart and like, go tell them Jesus is the only way. And some people, like, you think, if you think that's going to be, like, just the most magical conversation every time, I mean, all faith in the world that the spirit just convicts them, but probably. Go ask Jay about some of the conversations he had in Colorado when he was sent out and him telling people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, you know, all of them awesome. Most of them aren't. And so these people were like ready to stand in truth, though. What I want to point out about that, though, and what needs to come into the church, and I believe we steward this well, is a holy conviction to stand in the truth without arrogance, without self-righteousness, without any kind of arrogance in our heart, but to not move from the truth. What is the truth? Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is a need. Being loving to people, being compassionate to people, isn't by being tolerant it doesn't, as Jesus does not praise that. In fact, we'll get into some letters where he flatly rebukes that. It's called cultural assimilation or trying to be like the culture in hopes of winning someone. And Jesus is not about that. It's not actually loving. But listen to what he says about these people who are testing apostles. In other words, he's like, you've drawn a clear line about what it means to follow Jesus and what it doesn't. Because the word... And the only reason we can draw a clear line in what it is to follow Jesus and what it is to not. You remember when we preached a couple of weeks ago or I preached a couple of weeks ago on Christmas Eve on what it means to follow Jesus and to be his. The word is so clear. So, so clear. It's not down to my feelings. And so there is a line we need to make. But here's what Jesus is rebuking in the Ephesian church. He says, but this has all become a distraction to you. And you're more obsessed with knowing the line of truth than you are with actually loving people. You've become so distracted. This next verse in verse, um, what is it? Verse four or five? It's verse four where he talks about remember therefore. I'm sorry, verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Um, I want to kind of like clarify something here about this verse. It's so important. For the longest time, all that verse meant to me was that, God, I have been working so hard in religion and I need to go back to you. And I just need you to know very clearly that that is not what the spirit is saying in this passage. Sorry for the time I've ever taught that if I've ever taught that. In most of your translations, verse four is to remember or to come back to the love you had at first or the love you showed at first. That's why verse five says, remember therefore, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, not feel the first love. Talk about putting everything out the window, you know, like a season of my life was centered around coming back to first love. And I'll get to it in a second. It's not that we throw that out. It's certainly important and it's certainly a part of what he's saying. But the essence of what he's saying is you guys have become obsessed with trying to, by the way, by the way, by the way, this is so important. He's praising the fact that they were drawing a clear line of what it looks like to follow Jesus of those amongst their own body, not the world outside of them. He was not praising you being an armchair pastor making comments on YouTube about whoever you don't think is a pastor or a follower of Jesus or is some false teacher. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in your house, you are 100 percent called to clearly make clear lines. Some of you, we've had these conversations of like Colton and I have come to your house or somebody's come to your house or you've talked to somebody about this. It's like, hey, man, I love you so much, but like I don't see where you're following Jesus. I know you're saying you're following Jesus, but saying you're following Jesus is not how you follow Jesus. 
And I know that, I mean, that, that destroys some friendships and it's worth it because I want him to be glorified in every one of our hearts and he gets what he's worthy of. And if my friendships go out the window, so be it. To be honest, it's only, I've only seen it be fruitful to have those conversations. To raise a question of somebody that I love that says they're a father. Not, again, listen to it very clearly. Not sitting around saying, I wonder if that church down the road is really a follower of Jesus. That's not what he's praising. What he's praising is that you and I have a fire for the Lord, a zeal for the Lord, a hunger for the truth. And a hunger for us to be a pure and spotless bride. And so if you, in this body, you can come here as long as you want. And you can have a blast and, and do whatever you want. But if you name yourself, if you say of yourself as a believer of Jesus, you bring upon yourself a heart that is saying, I'm willing to submit to the leadership of this house, to the people around me, and they can question me. Here's the thing. Bree can come up to me at any moment in the Lord. And she said, hey, I know you say you love Jesus, but I, I feel like your life is saying otherwise. Do you know that's the kind of authority we have in the body? That's the kind of responsibility we have to one another. So Jesus is praising that. He is not praising a bunch of people who just have opinions. But what he is saying with his rebuke is that you're forgetting to actually love one another. To do the works you did at first. Very simple return. What were those works that they did at first? Specifically... Give to anybody who has need, give to the poor, heal the sick, feed the hungry. Or in other words, show hospitality. Um, love was to Jesus and the disciples was not primarily a feeling. It was an action. It was something you do. And so for the early church, when he's saying, Repent, therefore, you're getting kind of carried away with like, in other words, your whole week is consumed thinking about if other people are really following Jesus. Just put that aside for a little bit, please. And actually do something. Have you given to anybody recently? Have you prayed for anybody who is sick recently? I hope that when uh, somebody coming... Like in your house church group messages, if you have those. Does everybody have those? Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> Just went out on a limb there, you know. It's not much of a limb. We love group messages. You know, on your house, when somebody, <clears throat> that was not a slight. Not a slight. Blessing. <clears throat> I create a lot. Um, I hope that when somebody like comes across your like message, like, hey, we're, you know, struggling, so-and-so's got the stomach bug, that your first response is, I want to go pray for them. Not praying emoji. No, no, no. Like, praying for them. Praying emoji is, I don't care if you sit in your room and pray. Like, this is what it meant. There was no such thing as that in the early church. It was, well, what if I get sick? Well, then I guess we believe sickness has a power that the Lord says it does not have. And that's okay for you to believe that in that moment. But let's be honest. Let's not talk about how we're, we want people to be healed and then never do anything. At some point or another, there's going to be risk involved. Yeah. Your reputation. What if I pray for them and it just is weird, nothing happens? Oh, you look like an idiot. Try again. <laughs> you want to know how many times I've looked like I'll just... I thought somebody was absolutely like just so sick, needed to be healed. They were coughing this, that, and the other. I go up to him, like, hey, can I pray for you? You know, I believe Jesus heals. Seems like you're sick. I just looked at me in the middle of a coffee shop. I'm not sick. I'm good. Thank you. He's like, that's cool. Talk to you later. <laughs> you know, it's just like, if, like, if you didn't think I felt as awkward as I ever, I mean, I was just like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to go pour a cup of coffee on my head. And that's stupid. <laughs> but like, Jesus is, <laughs> I just thought of him. Um, <laughs> fresh pot, keep your head on. <laughs> Matt used to say that back in the offices in the day. I just talk about, or Matt and Dan. It was more so Dan. He just, I'd say fresh pot, and Dan would just. Constantly, I don't even know where it came from. Like somebody would bring a fresh pot. Of, this is nothing to do with anything. Somebody would bring a fresh pot of coffee into the room, and I'd be like, oh, a fresh pot. And for some reason, the next thing that came out of Dan or Joseph or Matt, I don't know who it was. Next thing that came out of y'all's mouth was keep your head hot. And I was like, anyways, yeah, I don't know. It was not really that funny, but it was funny. To me. I'm very sorry. <laughs> so, 
Again, he rebuke or he praises the fact that we're to make like clear distinctions, you know, amongst each other, amongst the body, amongst people who say, how many of you in here say you follow Jesus? Amen. You have just welcomed yourself to mutual submission to the people in this room. And that's not that's not a trick. That's just like the reality. And if that scares you, I, I please consider whether you want to keep on following Jesus. No doubt. But the reality is, he says, we're not to get obsessed with that. We're to like remember the works we did at first and keep doing them. You're supposed to give to people. You know, I love the way I know this happens all the time in our body. And I, I, I believe it um, is going to grow like exponentially. I believe some of you are going to get like financially blessed this year and you're going to know what to do with it. And what I mean by that is it's going be going to be for very specific people in this body. I mean, absolutely take it to the Holy Spirit and do what you want with you know, whatever. But like, I, I believe some of us are going to come into some financial blessing this year, like never before. And it's because the Lord is le- like literally giving you perfect opportunities to partake in the acts of love, the giving to people in need. Somebody needs a car. We pitch in and get it. What was that? Karis got a car. What kind of car was it? Yeah, it doesn't even matter. Right. It was a new car. Yeah. I, I felt that way. I felt that conviction. It doesn't matter. I'm sorry. <laughs> like. Wes is like, it doesn't matter, it's a new car, man. But these like, these like needs that people have, like we're to do something about it, you know? The hospitality, oh my gosh, this is so important. Um, And I'm not talking about like, some of us really like, you know, if when I say hospitality, you go to decor, it's not primarily what I'm talking about, although that's involved. But if you're like, oh, I'm not one of those guys who likes what I don't care how everything looks, whatever. It's like, well, good for you. You're still called to be hospitable. Here's what hospitable looks like is you like being aware of people, you having people in your home. When is the last time somebody graced the presence of your home? I mean, there, the reality is, as I ask that, I think about so many of you guys and it's like your door is a revolving door of people in this body. And that is beautiful. And as best we can, I know it gets kind of crazy when you're trying to figure out all the kids bedtimes and whatever else. But like, listen, as best we can. And we're to like keep this heart according to Jesus. We're to keep this heart, this hospitable heart, welcoming people in. I just a couple of other questions here when it comes to being hospitable. When is the last time a stranger stayed in your house? And no one knew about it. When's the last time you picked somebody off the side of the street, let them sleep in your house and didn't tell somebody about it? I think this is the kind of, why are we called to show this love? Because this is the exact love that he showed us. We are the poor. We were the sick. We were the one very, very, very hungry and in need of help. And so he's saying, repent, therefore, do the works you did at first. He's literally calling us back to the new commandment, which is what? To love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is really no new commandment at all. It is the literal prayer in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus is saying, I'm just giving you a new heart with it for you to actually be able to do that. So the newness is not in the actual letter of the law. You go read Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 later. 6 verses 4 and 5. I can count, I promise. Jesus, this new commandment, is not complicated. What we're called to do always, forever. Like, we're not starting something new here. We're doing what he started, which is love God, love people. That's it. Amazing. The part where it gets difficult is when we actually try to love people the way he loves us. The other way he phrased this new commandment in John was to love others the way he has loved us. Then they'll know you're my disciples. So... (laughs) How do I love God? That's the first commandment there. How do I love God? A, a couple of clear ways to explain that. Exclusively, single-mindedly, and with no restraint. There is no such thing as loving God in a double mind. You're either all in or all out. The way he says that later on in these letters is, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, so I spit you out. He doesn't want the double-mindedness because he's jealous for you. And the only way for you to live in the power of God, the only way for you to actually love others, not in your own strength, is to first love him. Another way to say this when it comes to how do we love him? Like if we're to return back to the works we did at first, and that means to love him, love others, love him, love others, We need to know how to love him. And 
the, the, probably the most beautiful and convicting way that I feel like the scripture speaks to being someone that loves God is to be known by God. Um, I think just to reiterate some things that were prophesied last week about some of you guys have grown up like around the things of God for a very long time and you have been around God and know about God. But in this season of life, in these next couple of years or in these next couple of months, there is going to be a shift because you're going to be actually known by God. You being around the things of God, knowing the Lord's prayer, saying that before a sporting event, being around church on the holidays and whatever else, even coming to church faithfully all of your life, that isn't being known by God. Being known by God is him loving you. It is the opening of the song of songs. It is let him. And he's so patient and gracious to wait for you to let him. I can, I mean, this was the story of the Pharisees being around the things of God without letting him know them. Paul says it in Galatians. He's like, we've come to know God rather be known by God. He like stops himself to correct himself. Like we haven't come to know him. He's come to know us. So we love him by letting him love us. And then just like this song and dance of returning that back to him. This exclusivity is a way that it's been described. It's been really helpful to me as I have a single mind unto him. No other Allegiance, no other desire for anything other than him. That's how I love him. But like we know the scriptures speak about, we can't love him and hate a brother. John calls that a liar. So the way that I love others is seen primarily in these three ways. Not only these three ways, but the way that I, they, that I truly like give myself to the poor. What is the poor? The poor is not a, a socioeconomic class. It is included, but the poor is anyone in need. A.K.A. everyone. Heal the sick. Help the sick. Do something for the sick. Feed the hungry. This is like the early church was just marked by these things. They would do these things to one another and it became such a light that the Lord was not only pleased to dwell with it, but it like it stirred people into like, what kind of love is that? They have a love that does not regard themselves. That's so unlike the world. What kind of love is that? And how did they get that? That do you know that that's what's like your witness is meant to say something to the world around you. I just and again, I find it amazing. It's do the first works. It's not feel the first love in order to do the first works. I have to return to the man of love himself. But this isn't about me every time. Like <laughs> this rhythm that tends to plague a lot of bodies of like, I'm going to go serve the Lord and then, you know, have this season of rest of like coming back to first love. That's that's just that's a mythical thing. That's not real. Like we need to get out of our feelings and we need to know, like, look, I am to love him with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. And there are going to be many seasons that as I love others, I'm going to be so tired, feel so forgotten, feel so unseen, feel like nothing I'm doing is fruitful. And that doesn't mean it's time for me to rest. That means it's time for that. (laughs) Anything other than that is us getting over spiritual, I think, more spiritual than the Lord is. Anything other than that is us getting into this place where we're in our head like the Ephesian church was of like trying to draw these lines. It's like, well, just do something, anything. I really, I feel the spirit like honoring this in our body, but I also feel the spirit like also warning us in this. I feel like we're like living, like beginning to live in a pretty beautiful place with this, but I feel him warning us not to get lax about this. Not to rely on like a couple of people who tend to do a lot of things. And what I mean, like what, I, what do I mean by doing things? I mean like you giving to the poor, your own money, you healing the sick. I, like some of the spiritual gift stuff gets like really, really unhelpful when you think the people who have a healing gift are the ones to pray for somebody who's sick. That ain't it. Yeah, they are, but you are too, you know. Feed the hungry. Just bless people. I, like some of the single folks in our family, you know you don't have to be married and have kids to host people in your home. Just start hosting folks. You can't cook? Learn. Ask Brianna to teach you. Ask somebody to teach you. Still don't know how to? Buy a meal. I don't know. It's not a, like, it's not a competition of who's the best cook. 
Go get Rondon and have fun. About made Jay fall out. <laughs> ramen. I haven't had ramen in a while. It's actually yeah. like that ramen. I've had ramen. Not that ramen. Yeah. Okay. So he warns. I just want to keep on rolling here. He warns. <laughs> he warns that uh, if they don't do this, um, I, I want to like just, again, kindly, but, but lovingly, like kind of maybe upend a notion, a presumption that we have about Jesus that isn't consistent with his word. You know, I'm not like, yeah, a presumption we tend to have about Jesus is that him being patient means that I can keep on disobeying and it's not going to have any consequences. And that's just, just not true. And what do I mean by consequences? I mean, like, unless you start doing that, I'm going to remove your church. That's what he says to the Ephesian church. The lampstand is, I'm going to remove your church. Do you know that there are present day no churches in Ephesus? No Christian churches of the scholars who have visited that region today, unless there are Christians in hiding, which that could be the case. There's not much persecution, though, there. So that would be concerning if they were in hiding. But do you know that today, and especially in the hundreds of years following this, no churches in Ephesus. You know, if you go to Turkey today, predominantly uh, Islam. The Christian influence there, although growing, very little. A lot of the missionaries in the world that are sent to the nations, this is one of the first places a lot of them go is this region, like true missionaries, risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. So I, I just, you know, as much as it is like kind of, not kind of, completely sobering to know that the, the kingdom of God, you know what I was, the parable I referenced earlier that Jesus taught in Matthew 21, like, the vineyard gives a couple of chan- the vineyard owner gives a couple of chances and then he takes that kingdom that vineyard from the ones that he gave it to and gives it to a nation bearing the fruits of it it is like we kind of get like comfortable in what we're doing and we we have to pay attention to what he says is important and that's what i mean by like our preferences our uh, ways of going about things what i'm comfortable with you know uh, not a single person in here, again, is comfortable with being generous, initially comfortable, with being generous, with healing the sick, and with having people in their homes. If you're waiting for the mythical time where all three of those things feel like just butter, it doesn't exist. It, it does not exist. And, I, you know, what if these Ephesian people, I'm not saying what happened, it's not really important for us to speculate what happened as a result of this word, but it doesn't seem like anything good happened or much good things happened. For a couple of centuries, they were like the epicenter of Christianity and then it's gone. What if they just like started to become so self-centered, so me focused that they were waiting for the kids to be in just the right sleep routine to have people in the home? Everybody knows that's all. As a myth of a myth as there has ever been. No such thing as a kid's sleep routine. I don't care how many Instagram accounts you follow and how many moms say they figured out the trick. There's no routine. Or to have just the right amount of money to start giving to people. No such thing. Jesus actually says to those who have little, or to those who have much, much will be given. And to those who have little, less will be given. And he's saying, like, it's a matter of, not a matter of quantity, but what you actually do with what you've been given. I don't want to be a people that is removed. This isn't, you know, part of this view that the Lord's expanding in us is this is not some, like, self-centered, self-absorbing, absorption game we're playing. You know, there's a real king to honor, a real lord to honor, and it probably won't benefit your dreams and desires most times. Maybe it will. But if you're looking for like a, a spiritual enlightenment journey, there's a lot of other religions that can lead you on that, that fun thing. There's something more holy, something more lasting, something more generational available. And that is to be in the family of God and to be a witness of Christ in the earth. And my, oh, my, when we seek the kingdom of heaven, he adds so many things. 
But there is a very real reverence that's due to this. You know, we'll come back around. He, he makes a note here, kind of throws this in that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In short, uh, Nicolaitan is the Greek translation of a Hebrew name called Balaam, which was really important uh, in a very, very serious way to the early church that we'll get to uh, in the later weeks because he mentions it in a couple of letters. Um, it basically has to do with a lot of sexual immorality. And then he ends with a promise again in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. And the promise is to him who overcomes, to him who conquers, to him who responds obediently. I will give to eat from the tree of life. What a promise. Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know, I mentioned Jesus being quite intelligent. In Ephesus, uh, Ephesus and most of this region, in that day, uh, occupied mostly by Roman, not mostly, completely by Roman Empire. And one of the many different, different like pagan shrines that they had was something called the Temple of Artemis, or Artemis. Um, and... Long story short, beautiful, expansive palace and gardens. And it specifically was like notable. Back then it was known as like one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was super important because uh, it represented the Roman goddess Diana. But there was a tree in the middle of that uh, whole system, palace, if you will, grounds, you will. There was a tree in the middle of that place where if criminals got close enough to it, if you were convicted of a crime and you were awaiting some kind of judgment or whatever it is, or you, uh, even some people had believed you were like ill and there was no cure yet. If you got close enough to this one tree in the middle of that garden, and I don't know the specifics of this, but I know that this was a very real thing in that time, that it was like basically a tree of asylum and that you would be granted life and that all of your charges would be resolved. And the Lord is just so clearly saying that is not real. I have the real thing. If you think he's talking about a tree of life accidentally, I don't know. I would think he's saying something about that very specifically. And this promise is to us. In Revelation 22, the whole ending of our like, life with God, or not ending of our life with God, but the scriptures about our life with God, says this, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You have the beginning of scripture, the tree of life, the one tree that Adam and Eve did not eat of, Christ becomes the tree of life himself by taking the sin of the world upon himself and bearing it himself. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, somehow, some way, there are multiple trees of life that we're all eating from and others. It's enough to make your head go, what? But it's glorious, and that's the promise that he's put in front of us, that there is actually something to, like what we're talking about right now is not theological concepts, is not a collection of like um, ways again to just kind of figure this thing out a little bit better. It is unto a very real reality where, where, where we will feast with him, where we will live with him, where we will walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth if we overcome. Overcome what? Living in this place of like bitterness and judgment, and being obsessed and distracted by trying to make some like distinguishing line constantly between those that are and are not following him and not doing the works of love. This is how we overcome. I love that he's so practical and so helpful. Part of our, our view expanding of him, you know, the Lord did this in all, a lot of us when we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount for a little bit, is like he is as mystical as they come and as practical as they come. And those two things are one and the same thing for him. 